Good morning. Today we are going to talk about what I'm calling baby blues. And it's a little journey about the beginning of Brinley's life and my first month as a mother and how the trauma from what I went through, I think is what led me to my postpartum and what also keeps me from ever wanting to have children again. If you've listened to my other podcasts, you know that I did not enjoy being pregnant. However, I didn't really have a terrible pregnancy. I had really bad heartburn and I would get really bad migraines. Otherwise, I was only... I only had morning sickness for, I think, the first trimester. And then my biggest thing was that I was just constantly exhausted. However, I also didn't take great care of my body and myself back then because I honestly did not expect to get pregnant. Not that that's an excuse. I should have taken care of myself no matter what. But I really wasn't expecting to get pregnant. So I wasn't taking vitamins. I was drinking, you know, who knows how much coffee a day. Things like that. And I just, when I got pregnant, it was a culture shock for me in the sense of, you know, being pregnant, but then also having to change my eating habits and, and just take care of myself. So that's probably what made me as uncomfortable as I was, not the pregnancy itself. I do know it could have been worse. (laughs) So I bought those, what to expect when you're expecting I did research online, I talked to other moms, and I begged for real moms. I begged for people to tell me, I asked them, do not sugarcoat this. What is birth like? What is being a new mom like? What is, because although I had spent years wanting this, I was told for so long I couldn't have it that I almost unprepared myself for it. Or just kept myself from educating myself. So now, you know, that I'm four months pregnant and realize this is going by faster than I thought, I need to get prepared. I would reach out to people and ask them, hey, you know, what do I expect that these books aren't telling me? Or that, you know, my friend's like I said, are sugarcoating because, hey, I'm already pregnant. So it's not like I can undo this and they don't want to scare me. Well, it's not about scaring. It's about preparing. And I am a preparer, if you've ever met one. So for me, I really needed to know what to expect. I went through my pregnancy with all of the plans. Um, Let me just tell you right now, if you make a birthing plan, do it so you have a guideline and an idea, but then probably just throw it away before you even go into the hospital because that shit does not go as planned. Let me tell you that. And I learned that the hard way. So I created a birthing plan. I had all these do's and don'ts and I want this, but I don't want that. And they better let me do this. Otherwise, I don't know. And then you go the next shoot. Now I have to do math probably five more months at that point with this idea of this is how it's going to go. So I'm not going to get an epidural unless I absolutely need it. 
I don't want them to break my water unless they absolutely have to. Things like that. Um, I wanted to have essential oils in the room and some kind of calming music and skin to skin for at least a minute. And I wanted delayed cord clamping and all of these things that I had planned to just make that day that much better and welcome this baby into a very calm, loving environment. And boy, was I out of left field with that whole thing. So I will also tell you to pack your bag early. <laughs> People actually told me this. And as a planner, even, I didn't do it. So pack your bag early. Ask other moms what things that you should pack. I'm an overpacker, so it's probably a good thing that I didn't have the time to pack and take a bag because I would have taken my whole house to the hospital. But the baby was due in January, the beginning of January, I believe January 2nd. And shit, by, I think, honestly, by six months, I was done. I wanted her out. Obviously, I knew that wasn't safe. I wasn't pushing anything, but I was done. And Christmas time came around, and my parents decided to come out and just stay till she showed up. So they came for Christmas. They were planning to be there for New Year's, and then welcoming her and they weren't going to leave until I was ready for them to leave. So they came out, I believe a few days before Christmas and I was only a week out for my due date. So I'm like, okay, I'm comfortable working on natural ways to, you know, get my body ready and to kind of see if she was ready. So I tried things from massaging feet you know, these pressure points, different oils, walking, squats, whatever, bouncing on a ball. I did it all. And obviously this was my first pregnancy, so I didn't really know what to expect. And I thought the one night that maybe my water broke. Now, all I know is when you see it in movies, it's very dramatic. And that's what they told us. That's what Everything I read said it is not that dramatic. Sometimes it's just a trickle, whatever. So there was something. Clearly at this point, I'm assuming I peed myself. Who knows? But I thought my water broke. We were laying in bed and my parents were already asleep. I woke Brian up and I'm like, I just don't know. And I remembered in my breastfeeding class, they told us, if you feel like your water broke, you can come into the uh, labor and delivery or the ER and they can swab to determine if your water did actually break or not. And obviously at this point, I'm just ready for her to come. So I think I was grasping at anything. I'm like, oh, I think my water broke. We got to go to the hospital. And so we let my parents know we were going to go in. And this was Christmas night. We had had dinner at my father-in-law's and walked all day went home, and I think, like I said, I was just grasping for anything. And I just was so exhausted at this point and ready that I just, I don't know. Anyways, whatever you believe in, I believe in fate. And although my water didn't break, when I got to the hospital, they checked, and my blood pressure was really high. She said, well, maybe it's just the excitement of it, so we're going to give you 10 minutes and we're going to check it again. Came back in, it was still high, so they decided to check the baby's blood, uh, the baby's blood pressure. 
um, put a monitor on that and hers was high as well. So they had me pee in a cup and there was proteins in my urine. Now, mind you, two days prior, I had just saw my doctor and my urine was fine. Everything was good. So it was something we didn't even see coming. So they rushed me in and decided they were going to go ahead and get me admitted and get everything going to keep me and the baby safe. So obviously I let my parents know so that they could come to the hospital and I won't lie, I don't even remember what time it was. It was probably 10 or 11 at night, Christmas night, because me and Brian weren't fully asleep yet, but I know my parents were in bed. So I was probably admitted by 11 o'clock, I would guess. And they ended up having to break my water, which is very uncomfortable if no one's gone through that. Just without being super graphic, picture an entire hand up your uterus and then popping a balloon inside of you and having to squeeze all the air out of it. It was not fun. So they hoped that that would get everything going didn't work, so they ended up having to use Pitocin, and my contractions were strong enough, but they were not consistent enough, and I was just exhausted already. Um, obviously, at this point, fighting and trying to stay on my plan of not getting the epidural, and my poor husband was seeing me in pain, just begging me to get the epidural. He said, please. And I'm like, no, you know, we could be close. And then I'm just giving in too early. And I mean, hours went by that I was technically in labor and contracting. And I believe I had dilated to a five or a six and I just got stuck there. And so they upped the Pitocin and that made the contractions even worse. And again, the doctor was telling me, she said, they're, they're, you're contracting, I guess, bad enough. You know, if you watch the lines, uh, she said, but they're just not consistent. So, you know, we're going to up the dosage and just try to speed this process up. Well, mind you, anybody who knows, the doctors don't even come in technically until I think like seven in the morning. They do the shift change at the hospital. So you... You kind of have a delayed moment there where all the night nurses are leaving and the day nurses are coming in and then the doctor's not quite around yet. I was very, at the time, big on having a woman doctor just because I wasn't comfortable with a male doctor prior to being pregnant. Uh, now I have no shame at this point. <laughs> it's crazy what motherhood will do to you. But my doctor was out. It was Christmas. So she was with her family. She was off. So they had to call in a backup doctor, which was a male. And at this time, I didn't give a flying fuck who was coming. The nurse could have delivered this baby. Honestly, a bum could have delivered the baby. I just wanted her out and I wanted it to be over. So it was a blur. They, I remember my wedding day and they've all said, you know, Try to soak it up because the day will be over before you know it and you'll feel like you weren't even there. And I remember that happening at my wedding because you're just go, go, go. And I wished all the time that I could just step back and see that day, you know, from the outside looking in and just really embrace it and take it in. But I feel like 
the birth, the birth happened the same way from the night we went in there, which by the way, I had preeclampsia. I guess I didn't mention that. That's why they took me in. So me and the baby both had high blood pressure and I had proteins in my urine. I had preeclampsia. That's why they decided to induce me. Um, and I was at 39 weeks, so she wasn't early, early. It was still term, you know, as far as a doctor's concerned, and it was safe. But yeah, so the birth just went by <laughs> slow. I guess it was in slow mode, but also just a complete blur. Because between the people rushing in and out and the you know, the excitement, but also the adrenaline and being scared and unprepared. Cause I really, I went in thinking my water broke, but I also didn't think I was in a position to have a baby yet. So I figured if anything, they'd say, yeah, your water broke. Um, you know, go home, pack your things, come back. I don't know. Obviously I didn't know what to expect, but I was unprepared. I had the clothes I was wearing and that was it. So the birth just drug out but also was, I feel like I was in someone else's life and I was lost in there because it's really hard to remember everything. Um, I know that by, I believe 9am, the doctor finally came in. He checked me. I didn't, I don't even remember seeing him. I don't, I, to this day, have no idea what the man looked like. I think I have a picture somewhere of him holding Brinley when he, you know, fished her out. But I'd have to look back at it. But I do not remember what the man looked like. Um, I would have never remembered having relaxing music playing in the background. Or probably remembered, maybe I would have remembered the smell of the essential oils. I'm not really sure. Um, but I pushed for what felt like forever that I do remember. And my husband and my parents could probably tell you a little better on timing, but I think it was for maybe on and off for four hours or something. All I know is by the last push, I was completely exhausted and literally was ready to give up. Brian said he could see it in my face and this poor kid was just stuck. He's, he kept saying, she's right there. She's right there. Just one more push. Okay, just one more really good push. And I swear that motherfucker said one more push at least 50 times. And I was ready to kick him in the face because I'm like, okay, don't lie to me. I'm a realist. Tell me, hey, we're going to need 20 more really good pushes out of you in order for this baby to arrive. You know, and I'm like, okay, then let me prepare myself, you know, for 20 pushes instead of exhausting myself. For one more push. Man. Anyways. <laughs> so by the last push, I was I was done. So um, TMI, but he ended up cutting me, I think, that I can remember at least four times. And finally on that last one, I think he just stopped being nice and made sure that she would make it out. And the relief of, you know, being able to stop pushing. I just remember laying back like, oh. and obviously, you know, your instinct is to, that you have a baby there, but you're also so exhausted. And then they throw this baby at you and you get to love on it 
and then they want to go right to everything. So luckily for me, this hospital did support breastfeeding, delayed cord clamping, and skin to skin. Well, she had been stuck in the birth canal for so long that she was completely purple, which happens often, and she wasn't breathing when they first pulled her out. I have a video actually of them setting her on my lap or on my chest and I'm crying and um, you can see the nurse um, try to check her, um, I guess her pulse with her stethoscope and all of a sudden she's like, um, I'm going to need to take her over here and she pulls her away from me and you can see me just break down because... I was so exhausted, and all I wanted was to hold her. And obviously, her health is most important. So I didn't get that skin-to-skin -skin right away. However, they did um, bring her back. They got her crying and everything, brought her back to me. And I was able to do skin-to-skin -skin for, I believe, I believe they let me do it for an hour. And had me start breastfeeding right away. Now, if... If you've never been a mom or maybe you've never breastfed, that shit is hard. So not only did you just push a child out of your vagina for shit from 11 p.m. the night before. She wasn't born until 2 p.m. the next day that I was technically in labor. You are completely exhausted and then you have nurses in your face telling you she needs to eat. Well, obviously I understand she needs to eat. But I am I have like nothing left in me. And they're grabbing at you. And I've been up till this point a very private person. Obviously, as soon as you have a baby, all that shit goes out the window. Because there's, I mean, you could poop on the birthing table and... There's seven people there that are going to witness it. So I think you just have to get over that part right away. But still, then you got like two nurses grabbing your boobs, trying to shove the boob in the baby's mouth and, and teach you how to breastfeed your child for the first time ever. And she's crying and hungry and can't latch on. And so you just feel this defeat. And it is so easy to give up on. And if I will give anyone any advice, I will say do not give up on it. Try harder. Um, it's exhausting. It is not the only way. Brinley only got breastfed for the first couple weeks. She ended up in the NICU. I'll get to that. But either way, I really wish that I would have stuck with it, even if it meant that I had to pump and bottle feed until we got out of the hospital and then go back to breastfeeding, which I did, but I didn't stick with it. So try to stick with it, but also know if you can't and you don't want to, that's okay too. I'm not one of those that's like, you have to breastfed. I, yes, breast is best, whatever. You know, it's also best that I don't drink three coffees a day, but look at me. <laughs> it's a bad example, but you know what I'm saying? Everybody has a choice. So if you want to do it, I'm just saying, try to stick with it. If you have one of those days that you just feel like you can't hang anymore, you know, maybe pump and try to feed the baby and give yourself a break on the physical breastfeeding side of it, but don't give up right away. Try to fight through it because usually it's just a bad moment, a bad day. Now, I think having postpartum on top of that makes it even harder 
and I'll get there as well. But again, just, just try, try really hard. And if you can't, that's okay. But just know that I wish I would have tried harder now that I look back. Back to the point of that. Obviously, you're just bombarded. You're exhausted. All you want to do is sleep. But guess what? You're never going to sleep again. Prepare yourself now. Never going to sleep again. Get all the sleep you can up until the day you give birth because you'll never sleep again. Just for real. I'm not lying to you. And all these things are happening. So we finally got her to latch on. Uh, We were able to get into a room. My mother-in-law came by and saw her and uh, Brooklyn actually came by and was able to love on her, meet her that for within those first few hours. And Brian went to take Brooklyn home. And we were in Mansfield at the hospital and she lives in Hearst. So he made the drive. Uh, my, my best friend Christina was there. She worked at a hospital about, I don't know, 20 minutes away. So when she got off for the day, she came and she was there with me hanging out. I think my parents had gone back to the house to take a nap because they had been there with me since the night before. They went and took a nap. And so it was just me and Christina in the room, I guess, that we were going to be in until we went home. That call it something. I ain't got the name right now. And I was feeding the baby, you know, breastfeeding the baby. And like I said, she came out purple and she ended up turning like a red color. And that was just her color. So she's a newborn baby, new skin, whatever. Their color is just red. Well, I'm breastfeeding her and I'm looking at her, you know, and she's, she was sucking and she turned pale, like my skin tone. And I knew that wasn't normal for a newborn baby. Cause at this point I think she was only six hours old, five hours old. And I just was like, uh, it's weird. And I pulled my boob out of her mouth and I sat her upright. And when I sat her upright, head to toe, like slowly, her body just turned blue. Not purple, not red, blue. And she was not moving. So I started screaming and Christina jumped up and ran out to get a nurse in the hall. I'm getting chills just talking about it. So she ran out in the hallway and was screaming for anybody. She's like, help. And I'm holding my lifeless baby in my arms. Blue. I mean, her head's just flopped over. I mean, she's just unresponsive to anything. And blue in color. Like, I, it's etched into my mind. And no one was coming. So I just started screaming. And I literally had just had a child. I'm, you know, bandaged up. I got the stuff on me. I mean, I couldn't really go anywhere, but I was ready to get up and take her wherever. I mean, just go out and hand her to a nurse or something. And as I was trying to get up, four nurses ran into the room. And while I was holding her, the one, um, used her stethoscope and checked and she said, she does, you know, I I hear a heartbeat, but she's not breathing. So they took her from me. And went over, you know, held her upside down, smacked her. But all the stuff they do when they're first born, you know, to get them to cry. And uh, they they did get her color to come back. 
and they got her breathing and then they took her into the NICU. And, you know, the whole time I think I was just in panic mode and the adrenaline, I was just trying to, I I mean, I think I was in shock too because I didn't do much. And I remember just this blank stare and like, you know, I literally thought my child died in my arms and maybe from me breastfeeding her. Um, did she choke? Did, you know, I had, I didn't know. All I know is I was breastfeeding her. She was fine one moment. The next moment she wasn't. She didn't choke. She didn't make any noises. I literally just noticed her color of her skin change. And once they took her out of the room, I was like, okay, I need to call Brian and just let him know what happened. And I'm still calm, but only because I think, like I said, I was in shock. And so I'm like, I really was debating calling him because I'm like, okay, they got her breathing. They took her to the NICU. They're taking care of her. He's driving. I don't want him to panic, but I had to tell, he was my best friend. I'm like, something traumatic happens to me. He's the one that I want to tell. And, and he's the one that I go to. So I called him and I just started bawling. And he's like, what's wrong? And he had just dropped Brooklyn off. So he was all the way in Hearst at this time. And I just was bawling. And I think I ended up having to hand the phone to Christina because I couldn't even talk. And she, you know, she's a an RN. So she's used to the hectic, you know, crazy stuff. However, I don't think she's used to it being so close to home. So she was definitely shooken up too. But she was able to at least explain and more professionally explain to him what had happened and what was currently happening. So he, of course, rushed back to the hospital. I called my parents. They rushed back to the hospital. And I don't think we got any information for hours. Um, You know, we had to go out and ask nurses, like, hey, how is she doing? They're like, oh, the doctor will come and talk to you when they're ready or done, whatever. So... They came in and they weren't sure yet what happened. Um, So we named it, we called them blue spells is what we ended up giving it a name for because it happened often. So they said it could be that her lungs aren't developed fully, but she was almost full term. So that's not super common, but you know, there's a lot of things it could be. So we are going to run some tests and, you know, we pretty much gave them a free pass. Like whatever you want to test for, let's figure out what, what's wrong, what happened. And she was in the NICU for, at that hospital in that time, I believe a week. And I'm going to be off on all this because like I said, this was all a blur. I got to a point where I was literally just in survival mode in life in general, just trying to get through each and every day, that it all was a blur. So I'm not going to give you exact facts. I'm just going to give you what I remember, basically. So I believe we were at that hospital in that NICU for a week. And they said, you know, her lungs were fine. Uh, They were going to chalk it up to just her being a whole week early and that maybe something was undeveloped and we should just take her home. And basically, like, that she would grow out of it. 
And luckily, um, my best friend had used the outlet monitor. So that was one of the first things that I purchased when I found out I was pregnant. Obviously, I'm a planner and I'm also sometimes a paranoid person. So it was going to give me peace of mind just to know that my baby was, was safe. So we get home from the hospital and, you know, obviously at this point we kept her close by because we were just scared. Through that week we'd been in the hospital, she was still having these blue spells where she would get to where she would, she didn't have to be eating or anything, but she would get to where it sounded like she was literally like choking on air, like, or gasping for air. And her head would turn blue and she would usually come out of it, is what we would call it, before her whole to- her whole body turned blue or anything like that. And they just sent us home like that. <laughs> and and like there there was no book anywhere that prepared us for that. And then how do you sleep at night knowing that that happens? And I mean, in the hospital, it happened often. They had her hooked up to oxygen monitors, and it was normal in the hospital for her oxygen levels to be 60s, 70s. And anybody that knows stuff about that will know that that's bad. And they sent us home like that because they didn't have an answer as to what was wrong with her. So we got home, and we put the outlet monitor on her. And again, I don't know exacts, but I believe the monitor goes off if the oxygen level goes below 70 or 80 maybe, but then it goes off even crazier if it goes below 70 or 60. Long story short, it dropped into the 60s while we're at home and she turned blue again and started gasping for air or choking or whatever you want to call it. And sadly, because we'd been in the hospital for a week dealing with it, we didn't panic because it was almost her normal, but we weren't comfortable being at home where we didn't have oxygen available. We didn't have nurses and I just wasn't prepared for her to possibly, you know, stop breathing in my arms again. I just couldn't deal with it. I couldn't handle it. Um, so we called her pediatrician and she said, Oh yeah, if it dropped that low, you guys need to get her in the car, get her to cook's children in Fort Worth And if her oxygen drops again at all while you're driving, you need to pull over and call an ambulance because that's just too low. And obviously, um, there's a whole nother issue with um, losing oxygen to the brain. Kind of like when somebody drowns, um, it can cause brain damage, all kinds of stuff. So we rushed to Fort Worth. Obviously, at this point, my parents... I believe had gone home because they couldn't just stay. So they were back in Arizona and I called them to let them know we were going and we got to the hospital and they got her in and she was in, uh, the, I'm trying to remember what the name of the floor was because this is a children's hospital and they have a lot of sick children there. Um, some, with cancer, um, leukemia, like just, that's just where all the children go. And we were on the pulmonology floor. 
So anything for lungs or breathing related. Well, the problem with that was it's January at this point and it is flu season. It's uh, like whooping cough season and I'm trying to remember the other name for the... Uh, RSV season. So we were literally on a floor with a bunch of sick kids with RSV and whooping cough and that kind of stuff uh, because that's all lung related or breathing related. So we had to kind of stay quarantined in our room. And when the doctors or nurses would come in, they'd be fully suited up so that they didn't bring anything in with them from another room. And we lived in that hospital room for a month. And I'm guessing it was probably 300 square feet, maybe. No, it was smaller than that, probably. Maybe 200 square feet. It was small. We slept intermittently so that one of us was always awake with the baby. Neither one of us left. My husband worked from the hospital. I worked from the hospital for that month. And we just took turns holding her. Because she did not want to be put in her little hospital crib alone. And we didn't blame her. And so I would nap on the little sofa while he held her in a chair. Um, during this time, I was still trying to breastfeed. But also with her having oxygen and stuff, um, we had to start. And her being back and forth to the NICU. They did so many tests that we just, we went with her anytime something happened. But... They had me just pumping and um, we were bottle feeding. And so during that month, I, I mean, I was just exhausted. I mean, I just had a baby. I literally healed from having a baby in the hospital because we were there for so long. And I had bought stuff that I had at home to kind of help me heal and stuff. And I ended up just using all the hospital's stuff up healing during that time. And granted I wasn't in a hospital for me, but it was still just nice to be in a hospital where they had supplies that I needed in order to heal from having a child. And so, yeah, we took, we took turns with her, feeding her, holding her while she slept. We didn't sleep. Um, we napped is what I'll call it. And we napped maybe every other day, how we did not murder each other, I have no idea. I think each one of us had the thought at least once <laughs> because 200 square feet is a very small amount of space for two people who have been through such a traumatic experience, who have just become parents together and who haven't slept in weeks. I mean, I'm... I'm cranky when I don't sleep my four hours a night on a regular day, but add all this into it and then trying to work on top of it. I was literally answering work phone calls in between them coming in to check her oxygen levels and her blood pressure and everything like that. And somehow I had a record month that month. I think I used it as a distraction um, although I literally was working from a hospital food tray table, it was an escape in a sense of everything that was going on around me. 
the beeping of the heart rate got normal and it would literally start screaming anytime her oxygen levels dropped and then it was like all of a sudden you're out of that trance and you're over being mom and so I struggled with finding a separation between the two because there literally wasn't one there was no way for there to be one you know at the end of the day I had just become a mom but I was still a business owner and I still had employees and stuff that I had to take care of again I wasn't ready or prepared, I was ready. I wasn't prepared to be a mom because I didn't think it was going to happen. So I didn't prepare my company, my business, or my employees for me to be a mom. And I didn't know what to expect from being a mom either. I told them I would be out for a couple days having a baby and I'd be back to work, you know? And I did. I was. I was just back to work in a hospital instead of in my office setting. But I wasn't there... I guess, emotionally or fully mentally, honestly, uh, I was just doing what I had to do to get by. And that was to work in a hospital room alongside my baby that, that, you know, would stop breathing intermittently. So in the month we were there, they did every test from her lungs to her heart, to sleep studies, to, um, like eating. They even checked like her throat to see if there was a problem when she was drinking, if the fluids were going, you know, the wrong way and making her choke. She passed everything with flying colors. And although that's a good thing, it was so frustrating for them to come in and say, well, her lungs look fine. Well, her heart looks fine. Well, her brain looks fine. Her throat's fine. All of these things are fine, but yet the kid still stops breathing. And I needed an answer for that. I was not comfortable taking her home in that position because at this point she was on oxygen 24-7. And that was the only way to keep her oxygen levels in the 80s. And they don't even like that. So I just wasn't comfortable taking her home without an answer. You know, I needed to know why this was happening. And we finally got a doctor to, we had to put her to sleep, which man, to see your child go through anything like this in general is just hard and heartbreaking. And I wished every day that I could swap her places, but I knew we had no choice but to figure out what was going on. And so I mean, we went with her for every test unless we couldn't be right there. Uh, but I I held her down while they did x-rays of her chest. You know, we've held her down while they put... The poor girl had so many IVs put in her hands, her feet, that they ended up having to put it in her forehead because they had exhausted every other part of her body. She was, she was bruised, um... And so that made it hard for her to sleep and hard for you to hold her because she had this big bubble of um, an IV sticking out of her forehead. And so we held her down for things. We, I mean, I, I felt like I was the one putting her in pain. And were we doing this all for no reason? Because every test would come back normal after we, I felt like we tortured her. They would say, nope, that wasn't the problem. And so finally we had a doctor say, you know what, I want to put a scope down her throat and see 
if there's something we're missing between the x-rays we've done and, um, and whatnot to see if we're missing something. Well, okay. Again, we had no answers. So we're like, yes, let's do that. Well, then we find out they need to put her to sleep for it because she would move too much. Um, they'd already put a tube down her nose, um, to help with feeding at that time. And, uh, she ended up ripping it out and they were trying to test her something to do with her feeding with the tube. They were trying to test something, but she ended up pulling that thing out in the middle of the night. Um, as I was grabbing her with both my hands to bring her over to feed her, she reached up and ripped the thing out of her nose and she ripped it out so far. They couldn't just put it back in that night. Um, so luckily they got enough testing done, uh, with it to know that wasn't the problem, but he wanted to put a tube down and just look with a scope as he goes down to see if there's something they're missing. So we agreed to put our, shoot, at that time she was three, maybe four weeks old, um, our baby under for this procedure. And he asked, if while I'm in there I see something, do I have permission to take care of it? Because now is the time. You do not want to put her under a second time to fix the issue. So we had a discussion and decided, yes, if you see something, it needs to be taken care of. At this point, there, there was no need for second opinions because she had literally seen a hundred different doctors. So we had more than a second opinion. And so we sat in the waiting room and at this point, I think I was just numb. I think by this point, I had shut off all emotions because I just didn't know what to expect day to day. I didn't know if if or what day she may just die in my arms. And I think I was scared for that and paranoid and whatever that I literally just shut my emotions off because I couldn't handle that happening. I know, I know what I felt and how traumatized I was still from that first day that she turned blue and stopped breathing in my arms and she was fine. I mean, she was alive. She wasn't fine, but she was alive at least. And so if I truly did lose her, I just didn't think that I could handle it. And I didn't know what it was going to be due to me as a person, um, to my marriage, to anything. I just didn't know how I survive it. So I shut off all emotion. And at this point, I was more like her medical support caretaker. Now, I loved her dearly. But I almost did not let myself get attached to her for fear of losing her. And I'm going to try not to get emotional about it, but I spent her first year like that. And we finally left the hospital. They did find a, some extra skin when they went to do that procedure. They found some extra skin on her vocal, her voice box that he said it was not really enough to cause her to stop breathing like she is. However, he knows every other test has been done and this was the last shot, like our last chance of 
of doing something for her. So he did go ahead and trim it back um, while he was in there. And uh, she woke up and we spent, I think, another week in there while she healed up from that. And she was doing better. We were able to get her to stay, I believe, in the 80s without oxygen. So that was huge for her. And so we saw some kind of progress. Um, the blue spells were still happening. Uh, but I guess they weren't as bad. Or maybe at this point we were just so used to them that it was normal. And we were so tired of being locked in that hospital room for what felt like no reason because they couldn't find an answer. So we did finally agree to go ahead and, and take her home. And they said they think she just needed more time to grow. They don't know what the issue was, but hopefully the surgery helped, etc. So we had to take her home on a pulse ox, which checked her oxygen levels, and on um, on oxygen. We had an oxygen tank that we carried around with her, and she had oxygen um, in her nose. And we took her home on that. I ended up swapping the pulse ox out to the outlet monitor because it was just more comfortable for her to sleep with and if you saw the contraption that went with the post ox it was so hard to do anything if she had to go to a doctor's appointment you literally needed three people almost between carrying her the car seat and all her things and then putting her in the car so she was on the oxygen for a couple weeks at home and we went back in did another sleep study with her and it looked better. So they concluded that the surgery they did on her voice box did help along with just the fact that at this point she was, what, almost two months old? So she had just grown and developed more. So we were able to take her off the oxygen at home and we just kept her sleeping with the outlet monitor at night. And the doctor said for the first year she is still not in the safe zone. They're not going to they're not going to mark her off as healthy or a good bill of health until she's a year old. They told us we need to keep her on the pulse ox. We need to keep her in our room for the first year. So, like I said, that first year, I pretty much just was numb to any of it. I, I shut my emotions off. I wasn't embracing being a mom. I was fucking terrified of it. It terrified me to no end. Every night, I I know moms are paranoid anyways, but every night, I literally was just deathly afraid of waking up to her dead. And I didn't sleep. Um, during the day, I couldn't stay focused with work. Um, when she got to be, I believe, six months old, I finally agreed to bring in nannies. I was not ready to put her out of school somewhere where I wasn't around to know how she was doing or anything. And so I brought nannies in to help during the day so I could just get caught up with life and work. And I still was paranoid all the time. If I heard her crying or fussing, I went in to see like, you know, was there something wrong? Did she need something? Even though there was someone there caring for her, I think that's a motherly instinct too. But again, a lot of mine was paranoia and fear. And so 
I even got to a point where there was a part of me, and this is hard to admit, but there was a part of me that felt a little more comfortable with having another person there caring for her because I genuinely felt like if something happened to her, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it all on myself because there was someone else there not to blame, but just to, I guess, take the blame off of me or to take the pressure off of me. And man, that's just so sickening to even think about now. But I was, I was afraid. I was so afraid. And when she finally turned a year old, now mind you, through this whole thing, my coping mechanism was alcohol. And I will talk about that in another episode, but I mean, not just the stressful mom got home after a hard day of work and drank a glass of wine. I'm talking multiple shots a night just to numb the pain that I felt, the the trauma, the fear. I had to feed it or shut it up or whatever. And so I worked from home and had nannies home. So when I was ready, you know, when they were ready to go home, I'd come out of my office and relieve them of their duty. And I'd take a shot or two to just calm the fuck down and parent my child for the night until a nanny showed up the next day. And that was my life every single day for a little over a year. I was just in survival mode. And survival mode for me and I felt for her just waiting. And for some reason, I put this year timeline on it because that's what the doctor said was, you know, a year and she can move into her own bedroom or we'll give her a clean bill of health. So in my head, I heard she could die in the next year. That's what my dramatic mind heard with everything we had gone through is she's not safe until she's a year old. So like I said, I drank every single day up until that point. And I just got completely lost. I was a new mom. I was confused as to how to separate being a business owner and who I used to be with being a mom and being a mom in the situation I'd put myself in mentally and emotionally because I wasn't even letting myself enjoy it. So I planned her first birthday party And mind you, through all of this, I also went through the skin cancer journey. And um, that was a couple months before her first birthday. So on top of everything else I was worried about, I also, you know, had a little scare myself and then spent um, a couple weeks not being able to hold her or, you know, know that she was okay because I wasn't, you know, able to even rock her to sleep or anything. And that took a little toll on me too during that time. And so for her first birthday, I planned an Alice in Wonderland party and it was a party. Literally. I mean, she was turning one. She had no clue what was going on. And I just had a bunch of my friends over so we could drink and, you know, I didn't realize it, but in a way I was celebrating getting past that one year mark that like, you know, she survived. And it wasn't until a couple 
weeks after her birthday that we actually got to go to the doctor for her one-year checkup and, you know, go over everything. And they redid, um, they redid everything and said that, you know, she, she had a clean bill of health. That unless there was some other issue that arised, she should be good. And the relief that I let out, I got to the car um, from the doctor's appointment and I put her in the car. And for some reason, the words and just the timing and hearing someone say that basically she was going to be okay... It was like I saw her for the first time. Like that day is when being a mother started for me. And I beat myself up for a long time for wasting that first year with her and not being available for her for that first year. And I finally had to forgive myself and and move on and right after all of that is when this pandemic started and although nothing is good about this pandemic I think the timing happened perfectly for me because I had decided to get sober prior to it um, now that I wasn't afraid of losing my child, I didn't want to numb my feelings anymore. I didn't want to run. I didn't want to hide. I wanted to embrace her and love her and, and be there for her. And so I made um, a vow to myself that I would stop drinking. And I did it, I did it once uh, before her first birthday, but I think I only did it for a week and I ended up back drinking again just because, like I said, I guess fear, whatever, I want to blame it on at this point, but um, I got sober and I ended up going out to my parents for the pandemic and spent three months just with family and a loving home and an accepting home. And through all of this, they never once made me feel like I couldn't handle it or that I was a bad mom. I think they saw my struggles and instead they were just a safety net there for me to pick me up and, you know, to gather the pieces as they fell until I could put myself back together again because that was, I was the only person that could do it. I was, if I didn't see the problem, there was no way it could be fixed no matter who said what. So my family just gathered the pieces as I broke apart and fell apart. And when I finally went to them and said, I need help, it was like they handed me all those pieces and gave me the tools that I needed. And then I just had to heal. Um, I had to face everything. Um, up until that point, I had not thought about the day she was born. I couldn't think about it without almost having a panic attack. So for the first time, I, I dealt with that fear and that hurt and that trauma and what felt like a loss and then had to get past that and embrace that she survived and that my marriage survived it and I survived. And 
I will never take another day for granted with that little girl again. And due to the trauma I went through in having her and the fact that I, I don't want to share. I know I could. I know your heart grows when you have more children, but I don't want to share this with another child. I want to give everything that I have to her and... I just want to be the best mom I can possibly be. And that doesn't mean the mom that makes homemade cookies and doesn't let her eat frozen chicken nuggets. That's I want to be the mom that is involved, that is there 100% heart and soul. And I want her to know that without me ever having to say the words. Now that I've gotten all emotional, in conclusion, moms, new moms, whether it's your second time having a child, your third. If you find yourself just, I mean, even just off, let someone know, whether it's your husband, your family, a friend, or you reach out to a professional. I know you don't have to feel this way, and I should have, I should have reached out before I did I just made excuses for a lot of the things I was feeling and almost validated them too much so that this is just what motherhood's like. This is just what it's like to be a new mom. It's just because I can't seem to figure out who I am if I'm not a businesswoman and, you know, and a mom. So talk to somebody, you know, if you've, if you've felt postpartum or any kind of trauma or anything like that, share it with me if you're willing. You know, I know I'm not alone, but people just don't talk about this stuff enough because one, it's hard. Two, they don't want to scare other, you know, future moms or anything. Um, and also, I guess some people just take it as negative, but this was my life. And I survived it and... Although it was, it was rough, I just know that if there's somebody else out there that's feeling it, I need them to know that they're not alone and that there are better days ahead. You know, so hang in there. Until next time. XOXO.